Good morning. I want to encourage you if you grab your Bibles or a phone or a tablet, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. As Colin gave his plea to, to have somebody sign up for the dunk booth, my wife leans over and says, you should sign up. And then it dawned on me, I said, wait, I noticed you didn't volunteer yourself, you're volunteering me. And I said, it's a horrible idea. Colin walked off stage, I just want to tell him thank you for being tribute. I'll just call him Mocking Jay and walk by and do this to him. Thank you, yep, we've got it. If you're over 30 and don't have kids, you may miss that and it's all good. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be here um, over the next couple of weeks uh, uh, leading up to Christmas. We're going to get all the way through 1 Thessalonians 1 1 today, which may scare you into thinking we'll be here till next Christmas, but I encourage you that we will be moving quickly, but we want to set the foundations uh, for this book, this letter that Paul has written. Uh, In the year 1519, Spanish explorer Hernan Cortes arrived in Mexico, and the mission was to push forward into the Aztec Empire, and and what Cortes does is not all God-honoring at all as he pushes into the Aztec Empire, but there is something I want us to consider in Cortes's mission. Cortes arrives in Mexico, and um, he has 600 men with him, and they, they have a mission to accomplish, and he wants to send a clear message that we are going to push forward into our objective, that we're going to push forward and be faithful to the task that we have at hand. And so the legend is that Cortez ordered that his ships be burned. The boats that carried them uh, from the the old world to this new world uh, were to be burned so that there was nothing to do but move forward. So you're one of 600 men, and you're sitting there looking in the water as the ship that's carried you to this new destination, to this new land that you have never been, is engulfed in flames. And one thing is very clear at this moment. Well, we're not going home that way. I think that what Cortez wants his men to know is this. As long as the ships are in the harbor, there's a possibility we can go back. And as long as the ships are in the harbor, I'm really not completely focused on the task at hand because I'm going to have one eye on the task at hand, but but if it gets too difficult, if it gets too hard, if it gets too too complicated, if I just get tired of doing this, I'll just go back to the ship and I can go home. So if I'm half committed with only one eye on the task at hand and one eye in the ship in the harbor, Cortez isn't going to get his best effort from his men. So the ships are burned. And now there's no turning back to what felt comfortable, what felt safe. And the only thing to do is move forward on the mission and task at hand. As I said, we're going to be in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, until about Thanksgiving. This is one of Paul's uh, earliest letters that he writes. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the context here a little bit. But Paul, during his second missionary journey, uh, after he leaves Thessalonica, will write this letter to this church to encourage them. And as he does, a word that continually comes up that we want to be focused in on as a church over the next couple of weeks, not only as a church, but as individuals, is the word faithful. 
we want to consider what God is calling us to in faithfulness corporately, together, as well as individually. Our big idea this morning that I want us to think about, and it's actually, I think, what we should be focused on over the next couple of weeks is this, because I think this is really kind of the main uh, thrust of this entire letter. It's this, our, our future inheritance should fuel present-day faithfulness to his kingdom. We've been called, as, as, as Peter would say, from, from a feudal way of life. We've been rescued from a, a, a life of worthless idols into, into a, a, a life of, of, in Christ. And we've been rescued not by, by things like silver or gold, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ and his blood spilled uh, at the cross. Uh, that we were alienated from God the Father through our sin. And that Christ comes and lives a perfect life of obedience and then walks to the cross and is nailed in the cross, his blood shed for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, um, if you don't know who Christ is, I implore you, be reconciled to God in and through Christ. And so Paul has gone into Thessalonica and has preached Christ, and people have come to Christ, and he now wants them to remember that there is more to life than just the immediate and just the right now. In fact, as we're going to work through 1 Thessalonians, where we put our chapter breaks in our Bible, at the end of each chapter break, there will be a reference that Paul will make to the future, to Christ coming again, to us being saved from the wrath of God through Christ. And so Paul, in this book, is, is wanting them to understand that they, they've been saved from worthless idols, from, a, as Peter would say, a futile way of life, into a life with the living and true God and that our future hope that we have stored up in him and through him and with him should motivate us, should fuel us to present-day obedience, or as we're going to call it, present-day faithfulness for his kingdom until either we die or he comes and brings us home. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in this book. But here's the thing. In order for us to move forward, we have to do so with both eyes fixed on him. Some of us have ships in our harbor, and we walk with one eye on God, and one eye on what used to feel comfortable, safe, familiar. Some of those things are sinful. Some of those things aren't sinful and bad. They're just really not what should be getting our best effort. And as long as those ships are in the harbor we're not going to press forward corporately or individually with God. And so as we think about this word faithful over the next couple of weeks, I want to challenge us as a church and as individuals to be thinking about what ships we need to burn in our lives so God is getting our faithfulness, our best energy, our best effort, because we're thinking about more than just the moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And as we jump into here, I want us again to be thinking about this concept of ships. Because I think too often we can be like the proverb in chapter 26, verse 11, where we're like a dog returning to his vomit. That... We want to live for Christ, but we so easily, so quickly 
want to run back to what we thought felt good and comfortable and safe. And, and it's not healthy for us. And it is the epitome, as, as, as the Proverbs would say, of, of a dog going back to his vomit to, to basically clean it up. And God has called us to more than that. And I want us to see this in this concept of faithfulness with our eyes locked closely and firmly on God and thinking about ships that we need to consider burning. Okay, So 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace. If we want to move forward faithfully I want us to think about three things and I want us to really think about three other words today other than faithful uh, the first is this, if we want to move forward faithfully, we need to do so with God as our foundation. And I want us to focus in on this word church. Okay? Now, now, Paul is writing a letter. The first Thessalonians is a letter. And, and in our modern day, we have, we have letters that we write that, that follow a similar pattern. We'll say, you know, dear so-and-so. And, you know, dear, dear Janet, how are you? You know, we, dear to the person, then a, a nice formal greeting. And dear Janet, how are you? I hope things are well. Just kind of some formalities, and we'll write our letter, and we'll close it. Uh, sincerely, or love, or affectionately yours, uh, Bobby. You know, and so we, we, we write the letter. In, in um, the ancient Near East, there is a form that letters take, and Paul is using that form. And it, it starts out with, with, with who the letter's from, and who it's to, and then a traditional greeting. So you're going to see this. Paul with Sylvanius, or Silas and Timothy. Now, Paul is the author, and Silas and Timothy are with him, and he wants them to know because when they were in Thessalonica a few weeks earlier, Silas and Timothy were with them, so they know Silas and Timothy. So he says, listen, this is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul is writing, and this is to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. I want us to focus in on this word church, to the church in Thessalonia, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to go a little deep here. I don't normally jump into Greek and Hebrew words, and I don't consider myself a Greek and Hebrew scholar, but I want us to think about this word church and how we get this word and what it means. So the word church is actually from the Greek word ekklesia, and the word ekklesia meant simply an assembly or a gathering, didn't necessarily mean it was a religious gathering. It was just a gathering or assembly of people in any community event, whether it's secular or religious. And oftentimes it was used most often in governmental settings. And ecclesia was typically used to describe an, an assembly that gathered together of free men, uh, men who had the right to, to vote and change laws and elect officials. And in my naivety, I thought, or my jadedness, I thought, boy, that sounds a lot like a church, right? Um, but it's not what the church was called to be. And he says, listen, and to the ecclesia in Thessalonica by, by the people, by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this word ecclesia is just simply a gathering or an assembly. You're an ecclesia, you're a gathering in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he's saying. Your ecclesia, your assembly, is different from other assemblies. You're not a political assembly. You're not an assembly to vote your way or change your laws or elect officials. You are an assembly that is marked off as different. You're an assembly in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up and gives a speech of what we would call Old Testament history, of what God was doing in the world 
and does a great job of Old Testament survey. And at one point in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen uses the word the congregation of, of God's people to describe the congregation in the wilderness to describe God's people coming out of Egypt as they were heading to the promised land back in Exodus. And, and it's called the ecclesia in the wilderness, this assembly of people in the wilderness. And the reason that word is used is because in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., there was a version of the Bible that was called the Septuagint that was taking what we call the Old Testament from Hebrew and translated it into Greek. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and you had this word that popped up in Deuteronomy and Judges and 1 King, and it was called qual. And qual was a, a gathering. It was the qual of God, the assembly of the people of God. That word in the Greek in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. got translated into ecclesia. Stephen grabs onto that, and now Paul grabs onto that. He says, you're an ecclesia in God. You're a gathering in God. Why am I getting so technical on this one word? I don't want you to miss this point. Paul says, you are an assembly of gathered people, but you are set apart in God, in Christ. What is going to make their ecclesia, their qual, their assembly different than everything else in Thessalonica? It is that they are at the foundation in God, in Christ. Now this is a question we have to ask ourselves today. What is it that marks our gathering as different from other assemblies? What makes Life Church or any church different than an assembly at the Rotary Club or the VFW or Crosby Scholars? or a yoga class, or an assembly at a football game? What, what is it that makes us different than those assemblies? And it's this, don't miss this, because this is, I think, extremely foundational to the call to be faithful. It is, we are a gathered people in God the Father, in Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what's to set us apart from every other gathering, that we are to assemble under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this means I have to slaughter, and I use that word intentionally, I have to slaughter and fight my desire to make church about me, about my personal preference, my desire for personal glory, my desire to be in charge, the desire to have my way. If we want to talk about burning ships and moving forward, the first ship that we need to think about burning individually and as a church is the ship of what I would call pride or self-service or personal sacrifice right, or personal preference. I, I, I too often, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this stepping on, church has become about me. That is the state of where we're at. We have made church about us. And if I'm not happy, if I'm not getting my needs met, if there's a cooler program down the road, if they're preaching just a little bit softer down the road, that's where I want to be. And I will stay there until either you've made me upset or I can't vote you out or I'm not getting my way and I will pick up my voting dollars and I will move down the road to the next church as long as they meet my... Let's be really blunt and blatantly honest. That's church in America today. And I would suggest it's probably just a tad bit nauseating to God. Okay? Wow, thanks for that wonderful message, Matt, right? We've got to be honest, though. If we want to walk faithfully, 
with God, faithfully, eyes locked on him, we have to destroy, burn the ship of that. It is about me. Because the world has told us it's all about you. And God says, no, we're not an ecclesia, a gathering of people that are here to make sure your needs are met all the time. It's we are a gathering people to proclaim, to live out, and to glorify God the Father. That's a much different ecclesia than what's going on in the world today. So what derails this faithfulness to God? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one is what we look at as our authority, and number two is who we look at as in charge. As a church, we want to move forward faithfully with God as our foundation. To do this, we need to remember how Paul sets this church up. I want you to grab your Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 17. We're back in Acts. It's like the horror movie where the guy doesn't die. We're back. Yay, yes, it's good. Some people are like, I thought we just left this book. We're back at this party? There's a lot going on in Acts, and if you want to dive into the New Testament and read letters to the Corinthian church, the Philippian church, the church at Ephesus, you can't just simply walk away from Acts because it all ties in. Okay? So here we are back in Acts. Now, I want to move forward faithfully with God. I want my, my, my future inheritance to fuel my present-day faithfulness. That means that I need to let God be the foundation, the, the church, the ecclesia. We are an ecclesia in God, in Christ. How do we do this? Well, to move forward faithfully, we need to let Scripture be our authority. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of set up how we got here. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, I'm bad with names today, sorry, and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women." So, how do we move forward faithfully with God as our foundation? We do so by allowing Scripture to be our authority. Remember, I said three words I want us to be thinking about when we think about the concept of faithfulness. Church, the ecclesia, we're called out in Christ, in the Lord. And number two is this concept of Scripture. It's to be our authority. Let's talk about how we got here. In verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, When they had passed through, we need to figure out who the they are and what brought us here. Let's do a quick recap. Uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas go out in earlier in Acts on what we would call the first missionary journey. Uh, they come back, and now they're headed out in chapter 15 and wanting to go out on what we would call the second missionary journey. Before heading out, Paul and Barnabas have a discussion over a man named John Mark. Uh, John Mark is actually the author of the Gospel of Mark, but in the beginning, John Mark struggled a bit. Um, John Mark goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and partway through, he abandons them. He goes home. And now it's time for them to head out again, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul doesn't think he's quite ready and, and doesn't want to take him. And so Barnabas and Paul decide they're going to go their separate ways, and Barnabas grabs John Mark, and they go a different way to minister, and Paul grabs Silas, and they head a different way. So in Acts uh, 16, uh, Paul and Silas head to Derby, where they meet Timothy, 
And from there, they head to Macedonia. Macedonia is this region where Thessalonica is, where Philippi is, uh, where Athens is. It's in modern-day Greece, and it is, uh, Thessalonica is actually the capital of this area. So Paul heads to Macedonia in Acts 16. His first stop is in Philippi, where he and Silas um, start a church in Philippi. They wind up getting arrested. Uh, people come to Christ, and Paul and Silas head out. And in Acts 17, they are the they of Acts 17.1 that now find themselves in Thessalonica. In a few verses, we'll see them get run out of town there. They'll head down to Berea. They'll get run out of Berea because the Thessalonians will run down to Berea and kick them out of there. And they'll head over to Athens in Acts 17. And while Paul and Silas and Timothy are in Athens, Paul will send Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. Paul will head off to Corinth. Timothy will join him there, give the report as to how things are going. Paul's excited, and he writes what we have as 1 Thessalonians. So let's talk about this town of Thessalonica. It's actually not a town. It's a major city at the time. It's about a quarter of a million people, which for back then was huge. So you have a quarter of a million people that are in this Roman Empire. Thessalonica is a free city. It doesn't have Roman troops. It doesn't have to pay taxes. It's really this prestigious place. It's a major stop on a major highway that connects the western part of Rome with the eastern part of the world. It's a seaport. It's this dumping ground of all kinds of different cultures, which bring with it all types of different religions. Uh, Paul goes into a synagogue to reason, which means it's big enough to have a Jewish population. Um, But the Jews aren't the only ones there. There are over 20 gods and goddesses that are getting worshipped in this town of 250,000 people. There's emperor worship that's going on. It is a melting pot of ideas. Paul walks in in verse 2, and we're told that on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So that means, you know, for three weeks Paul goes in and begins to preach, and he was probably there longer than three weeks. If you were to read the book of Philippians, where Paul just came from, he thanks them for the two gifts that they sent him while he's in Thessalonica. So Paul's probably there a couple of months. And what does Paul do while he's there? Let's look at verse 2 and 3. He, he goes in as custom, and he reasons from the Scriptures, verse 2. He explains, verse 3, improves. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Note what Paul does. He walks in, and he opens Scripture. Now, when we think that Paul opens scriptures, we think of our Bible as we have it today. New Testament hasn't been written yet. So when Paul is opening scriptures, he's opening what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, and saying, from here, let me show you the promises that we had that Christ was coming, that Messiah was coming, and let me show you how Jesus of Nazareth fits into this and fulfills the promises of God. And church... Take note how this church forms and what serves as the foundational authority for this church. It's Scripture. Paul opens it and lets it speak. Just a few days ago on September the 18th, uh, Chuck Lawless wrote an article called Ten Fears for the American Church. This was just written four or five days ago. Um, I want to just share a couple of the fears that he has for the American church because I think he's spot on with where we are today as a culture. He says, I, I fear the American church is going through the motions and we're not really experiencing God. 
He says, I fear the American church is getting way too hung up on things that don't really matter. I fear that the American church thinks they're the most important Christians in the world. I, I fear that the American church is tolerating sin way too much. I fear that the American church thinks too little about, little about Bible study and scripture memorization. I want you to connect the dots here very quickly as to what Chuck Lawless is saying. He says, my fear, and I think Lawless is spot on. He says, my fear is that churches in America have become lukewarm are focused on self, we just talked about that, are indifferent towards sin, and he connects it to the reality, he says, because we think very little of God's word. Paul comes into a worldview that is blasted with various religious ideas and opinions, a world where the belief was that, that the gods and goddesses, and there's no shortage of them, are there to make sure you get what you want. You worship them, and they should give you what you want. But don't worry about ethics and morality, because that's not what gods and goddesses are for. That was the belief in Thessalonica. That sounds a lot like America today. Paul enters in, and he doesn't, he doesn't win people to Christ over clever marketing, or, or quotable hashtags, or great programs. He walks in and says, guys, let's open this up, and let's let it speak, and let it be the authority and let's see what it says. Here is, if, if we want to move forward fully committed to God, to let our future inheritance fuel us with present day uh, obedience and faithfulness, here's the second ship that, that we need to burn. It's the ship of personal opinion as authority. And it's the ship of non-biblical sources as authority to shape your soul. I worked youth ministry for 13 years, and, and, I, and I used to say this with, with affection. I wasn't trying to be mean. Because the students that I had several years ago, they're now young adults. They're in their 20s, and some are in their 30s. And, and, and they would say, you know, we'd be talking about the Bible, and they'd say, you know what I think this passage means to me? And I would stop them, and I would sometimes with a smile and sometimes very seriously say, I don't care what it means to you. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you. I'm going to be honest, if we're in a one-on-one -on -one or I'm in a Bible study, you know what I think the scripture means to me? I'm going to lovingly tell you, I don't care. I want to know what it meant to the original audience. If I wrote a letter to my wife and you came across it and read it, you don't control meaning, I do. You can't come to me and say, you know what I think you were saying to your wife? I'd say, you know what, you have no right to tell me what I was saying to my wife. I wrote the letter, I know what I was saying to my wife. Your job is to discover that meaning so you can figure it out. That's how you read any piece of literature. But then we come to the Bible and we toss it out and say, you know what, let me tell you my personal preference. I, I'm going to say this lovingly. I don't care. I don't care. I care about you. And because I care about you, I want you to discover what God is saying, not what you think it's saying based on how you want to say at this moment in your life. Let Scripture speak. But here's the thing. We have set up as our authority our personal opinion. Well, I know what Scripture says, but that's just not popular today. Nobody does that anymore. We set and we come under non-biblical sources to shape our souls and the souls of our children or grandchildren. And some of them aren't evil. They're just not God-honoring. They're just not giving God the best energy and effort that you need. So here's the thing. You've you got to ask, if I want to walk in faithfulness to God, I have to ask, 
how I'm going to be faithful to Scripture. Now, I come to church on Sunday morning, we're going to open the Bible. And we're going to preach the Bible. We're going to come to church on Sunday morning and we're going to sing God's truths. We're going to pray about God's truths. Notice that I'm saying you need to be faithful to Scripture, not just coming to church, not just serving in church or giving or being in a life group or serving in life kids or being in coffee break or serving in security. Those are all good things, all good tools to help us minister, but they're not the authority. They're not the main thing. We'll preach the word, we'll sing the word, we'll pray the word. We'll offer life groups. You can jump in or coffee breaks or one-on-ones or your life kits for your children. And we're going to open the Bible. We're going to discuss the Bible. But the question is, will it be obeyed? That's the real question. We're not going to not open the Bible here and we're going to not, not talk about the Bible. Double negatives, English teacher, you love that, right? It's all good. We're going to open it and we're going to talk about it. The real question is, are we going to obey it? Or is it, you know what, that was, that was real nice. That felt good. Let's go get lunch. We'll see you next Sunday. You have to burn the ship where you feel you're in charge of your life if you're in Christ, period. There is no plainer way I could say it and no more loving way I could say it other than if you are a Christian and you are calling yourself a Christian and you want to be faithful to God, you have to burn the ship that you are in charge and that your opinion trumps Scripture. It is blasphemous to say that your opinion trumps the breathed out by the Holy Spirit words of the creator of the universe. It is beyond arrogant to say, my opinion, my thoughts on this matter, or the popular talk show host thoughts on this matter, trumps, because they get our culture better than the word of God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I cannot say it more clearly than that. I had a professor that used to say, to know and not to do is not to know. The Bible professor, he lovingly said, to know and not to do is not to know. And what he meant was this, you may know scripture, you may say you know scripture, you may be able to rattle off verses time and time and time again like nobody's business. But if you're not living out Scripture, I don't know that you really know Scripture. We don't open the Bible to win debates. We don't open the Bible to memorize words to high-five and just get candy and say we're, we know this many verses. We are open the Bible to understand it. Let it speak to us. Let it shape us. Let it guide us. It's our authority that we come under. To know and not to do is not to know. If you know it, and you're not living it out, we should question, do we really know it? It's easy to live it out on Sunday morning. It's easy to live it out in church. It's easy to live it out if you're in a Christian home right now. Some of you may be, some of you may not be. Will you faithfully live it out when it's not popular? 
Will you faithfully live it out when it may cost you socially or economically? Or does that point your personal preference, your personal opinion, and your non-biblical sources trump because you just want to blend in? As a church, if we want to focus on this word faithful, God needs to be our foundation of the ecclesia of our gathering. Scripture is to be our authority. And Christ is to be our king. Let's look at how this continues in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And I'll just continue to verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue and started over by opening Scripture and reasoning again, because that's what they do. So if you want to come under Scripture and live out Scripture, there's going to be risk. Paul and his companions go into this godless society where there is anything goes, and they share the gospel, and they share the message that Christ is king. He is the Lord of their lives. He's calling them to repentance in this broken, sinful society that is living for self. Now, in in Thessalonica, there is no shortage of gods or goddesses to to worship. There's a a plethora. There's There's almost one for every day of the month. They had 20-plus gods and goddesses, right? I mean, there was no shortage. And, and in fact, not only did they grab the Roman gods to worship in this, this Roman part of the, of, of the empire, but they even went down and grabbed some, some Egyptian gods and goddesses. They liked those too. And then they said, look, not only are we going to worship them, but we're going to worship Caesar. Like, he is God. He is king. And see the rub that's about to start in verse 7. There was no shortage of deities. Some of the gods and goddesses worshipped were, were Zeus and Serapis and, and Isis and Anubis and Apollo and Athena and Demeter and Artemis, Phoebus, uh, Dionysus, Aphrodite, Cabarrus, Pan, Dioscuri, Hercules, Nike, Daphne, Poseidon, Hades. Pick, take your pick. Just take your pick. It's, it's all good. What was really appreciated and really liked in that town is... Aphrodite, the goddess of love, who brought with her a lot of sexual license to Thessalonica that will make the call in 1 Thessalonians 4 not seem so weird when you understand that backdrop. And the goddess uh, Aphrodite was worshipped, and she was a popular deity in Thessalonica. Images and figurines are still found in the excavating of the city, and and, um, it came with a lot of freedom sexually, a lot of free uh, sexual practice that masqueraded as worship. And, And you throw into this also this uh, this cult of the empire that, that you are to worship Caesar as king, and this is the environment in which the church is being founded. The church is born out of conflict because, verse 7, they're preaching, there's another king. His name is Jesus. You see, if Jesus is king, that means Caesar is not. If Jesus is king, it means all of these gods and goddesses and all these temples and all these statues and all these practices we're taking part in are worthless. Now, conflict is about to ensue. 
Because in Thessalonica, the worshiping of these gods and goddesses and the worship of Caesar was very much expected of you as a citizen of that community. We put on community events. We put on parades or fun fairs within our county, within our city. They would put on community events as well. But they were, they were festivals worshiping Caesar or other gods and goddesses. And they came with, with much license and ecstasy and sexual freedom. And, and this was all you know, celebrated by, by the government and drunkenness. And if these people were living in Thessalonica and came to Christ, it meant they were taking part in this before they came to Christ. Now they're in Christ, what are they going to do? If Jesus is king, we now have an issue. Which brings us to the third ship that we need to burn, which is a lot like the second, and it's this. I I need to burn the ship of personal authority. You're not king. If you're in Christ, you're not king. Stop pretending you are. You're not in charge. It's, you know, I, I'm the third of four boys, and, and my brother's gotten in a lot of trouble, so I got to see my dad when he was not happy, right? I got in a lot of trouble. And there were times my dad would just simply have to say, you're not in charge. That was hard to hear as a young man. My dad wanted me to understand very clearly, you're not in charge here. I am. I'm the king. I can't say it any clearer than this, guys. If you're in Christ you're not in charge here. Your pastor is not in charge here. Your elders aren't in charge here. Christ is in charge here, period. And if he's not, we're no different than a yoga class or Crosby scholars or anyone else, which are not bad things. But if we're an ecclesia in God, in Christ, he's in charge, period. His scripture is word, it's authority, and he is king, period. Which means if we're going to walk faithfully together, we're going to have to start burning some ships of thinking that we're in charge or our opinion trumps Scripture. We live in a world that is a sea of religious pluralism. And here's the thing. In Thessalonica, if they like Jesus, no one cares. Put him on the shelf with everybody else. Put him next to Nike and Anubis and Aphrodite and, and Zeus and everybody. And nobody cares if you like Jesus in Thessalonica. What's the problem in Thessalonica? These guys are saying Jesus is what? He's king. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you want to like Jesus, nobody's going to have a problem with you. You go to church, that's great. You you go there for good community, good foundation to be centered, that's great. You may have some co-workers who study Far Eastern religions that look for the same thing. They're just looking for inner peace and happiness. If you want to like Jesus, nobody's upset with you. But if Jesus is your king, that's a different story. If you want to like Jesus, no one will be upset. But if Jesus is king and you bring him into the marketplace as king, you bring him into the community as king, there will be some rub. But here is what you have to understand. And this is what Paul needs the Thessalonican church to remember. This world is temporary. And eternity is forever. And forever is a very long time. And you're either going to be there with Christ or apart from Christ. Stop living as if this is all that there is. My wife and I had a conversation just the other day, the contents of which are none of your business. 
To which you're wondering, why am I bringing it up? As we were talking about this issue, and it wasn't a major issue, we were talking because husbands and wives talk, right? And we're trying to think through an issue we're, we're working through in our home. And, and I said, you know what? I, five years from now, this isn't going to matter. And my wife said, yeah, it's not. I said, you know what? 50 years from now, if we're both living, this isn't going to matter. And she said, no, it's not. I said, you know what? 5,000 years from now, when you and I are in eternity with God, this isn't going to matter. And she said, no, it's not. And then we said, so it shouldn't matter now. I mean, we have to deal with it, but it's not going to drive us because ultimately we're living for beyond right now. Brothers and sisters, if you want to live liking Jesus, no one will be bothered by you. But if Jesus is going to be your king, if you're going to live beyond the moment with Jesus as king, with Scripture's authority, with our ecclesia being God as the foundation, both eyes fixed on him, looking to walk in faithfulness, that might rub people differently. And our goal is not to be uh, combative for combative sake. Our goal is to live faithfully to our king and to show people the love of Christ and who he is. Now, the call to the Thessalonians church is one that we need to hear today. And it's this, are we going to be faithful? And we're going to see this word coming up again and again Will we be faithful to God as our foundation, to Scripture as our authority, to Jesus as King? Will we allow Him to transform, to dig into personal areas, to reign over us, to direct all facets of life? If we do, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to burn some ships. Otherwise, you're going to look with one eye in the harbor and one eye on Christ and think, maybe I should just go back. Because it felt good or safe or comfortable we have ships in the harbor ships that have carried us ships that maybe we were finding comfort in before christ ships that maybe we have gone to inappropriately since coming to christ and you can keep those ships in the harbor visit them from time to time and just blend in And as long as those ships are in the harbor, you will be held back from being what God has called you to be. And that is faithful to him till he calls you home either from death or his return. That is the message to the Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, it's time to burn some ships and not look back. This week I had spent some time listening to a song that that I enjoy, my family enjoys, from a band called For King and Country. And the, the song is called Burn the Ships. And um, if you're unfamiliar with it, YouTube it. And if you're over 50 and don't know what YouTube is, find a kid. They'll show you. And then show them people like Tim Conway and Lucille Ball so they can see what real humor is about, right? Make it a love 50-50. For King and Country, the, the concept, the song is called Burn the Ships. And, and, and this, is, this is a line from the song that I, I, I've been thinking on this week for me personally. And I just want to challenge you with as we close out. The line says, burn the ships, cut the ties, step into a new day, rise up from the dust and and walk away. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we have the courage to burn ships and cut ties that are keeping us from walking faithfully and obediently to God our Father for all his glory and all the joy and all his majesty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we can come together. And Lord, as we, we begin to dive into Thessalonians, Lord, I, uh, Lord, we're, 
we're not trying to soft sell it. We're not, we're not trying to stroke eagles to, to, to eagles to feel good about ourselves walking out. Lord, Lord, we desperately want to walk in obedience to you. In the short time I've been here, Lord, it's been a joy to see men and women who want to walk with you, who want to rejoice in you, who want to celebrate you. And Lord, I pray that we would have the courage in our homes, in our church, in our life groups, in our one-on-ones, in our, in our friendships, in our marriage. I pray that we would have the courage to examine our lives and let others examine our lives. And Lord, may we just torch ships that are holding us back. And may we walk faithfully, eyes locked on you for all your glory, for the joy of your kingdom. And because, Lord, this is but a blip on the radar for eternity. Lord, when you return to call us home, either by your return or death, may we be men and women that you can say, yes, we found you to be faithful. Christ is king. Scripture is authority. Pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen.